This message is entitled, Satan's Activity, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. This hour, Satan's activity among believers, his motive, his method, his means, his messengers, and his master. Starting with his motive, we need to look at a little background as to what is the situation as far as Satan's relationship to believers is concerned. Every person born into this world is born captive to the devil. He is a slave to Satan. The scripture characterizes as the children of disobedience being energized by the devil. The devil is their energizer. Every work that they do is a work of the flesh as energized by Satan. So that there is no work of an unregenerate person that God can look upon with pleasure, for it is all done in the flesh. Now, Satan is well aware of the fact that at the time of the new birth, his tyranny over that person is broken. Calvary spells doom to the devil's tyranny over that particular child of God. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 following speaks of the loosing of the believer from the tentacles of Satan and the breaking of his tyranny, that is, his right to rule. Now that does not mean that a believer cannot submit himself to Satan either directly or indirectly. As a matter of fact, he does that every time he sins. Every time he steps out of the will of God, he is in so much submitting himself to the hierarchy of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, of this world. So that the devil knows that even though he has lost a person for eternity, when they come to Christ. He has not lost them for time. His motivation then is to somehow regain control of them in time and thereby get them to do his will rather than God's will. Satan's motive is then to get escaped prisoners to come back under his control and to give allegiance to him thereby bringing dishonor to Christ and losing opportunity for reward at the judgment seat of Christ. This is his motive. Now, secondly, Satan's method. Two things about his method. First of all, it is carefully planned. It is carefully planned. Just as God has a plan for your life, so the devil has a plan for your life. I don't know whether he has four laws or not, but he does have a plan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, you find one significant word relating to his plan. Lest Satan should gain an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The word device comes from the Greek word noeo, which means to think, and with the noun form that they put on it here, you have noemata, which is the result of careful thinking. So devices 
are the results of careful thinking. Now, if you think about that for a minute, the devil was created as the wisest creature that God ever made. The devil has had, I don't know how many thousand years of experience. He has seen every kind of possibility of human action possible. So given his innate ability plus his experience, he is able to carefully plan the defeat of a Christian. And oftentimes he does it in ways that we would never dream. We'll look at some of those in just a moment. But the word here, we are not ignorant of his devices, his careful plans. He does not work haphazardly. He does not work by chance. He works by plan. Secondly, as the method, his method is subtle, not obvious. He is a master of the subtlety. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, and all means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He works subtly. He works craftily. We tend to work in the obvious, and we tend to think he works obviously, but he doesn't. He works subtly. So that the things that we would tend to say are innocent and harmless are probably the places where he is putting his most serious efforts. There's one word that I forgot to mention to you under his careful planning. You might note this one as well. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, a very familiar passage. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I think your NASB says schemes. Against the schemes of the devil. He carefully plans. He has exercised his mind. He has schemed. And then secondly, he is crafty. He is subtle. He is not obvious. So these two things seem to come out in the scripture as being very characteristic of the devil's method. It's carefully planned, and it is not obvious. It is subtle. Look at some of the things that he works through that are quite subtle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 again, the thing that Paul is warning them about as an opportunity for the devil is their lack of forgiveness. Now, most of us would say, well, what difference does that make? I mean, after all, my failure to forgive somebody in my heart, that's not an open sin anyway. It's not really a sin of commission. What difference does that make? Well, the person that he's talking about here is probably that man back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul instructed them to deliver over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that his soul may be saved. And apparently the remedial treatment worked. By isolating him from the assembly, they brought him to a place of repentance he repented of his sin, and now the Corinthian church was not as ready to follow through on the second part of that Matthew 18 passage we studied. They were not ready to forgive him. 
so that Paul says in verse 5, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not burden you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted by the many, so that in the contrary you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things or not. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Why? Lest Satan should gain a strategic advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Here Paul lists a failure to forgive as a strategic advantage to the devil. It may well be the camel's nose in the tent door, so to speak. Again, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, he speaks of pride as being the snare, the trap. Those of you that have been rabbit hunting will be familiar with the snare he has in mind here. The snare which is carefully camouflaged. The devil carefully camouflages it so that we are not really aware of the pride that has overtaken us. Pride is a very, very subtle tool of the devil. Seemingly, it comes on so subtly that we do not even notice it in ourselves, but it smells to others. Doubt is another crafty scheme. Doubt seems to be so innocent, and yet doubt dwelt upon will destroy you. Go right back to the original sin in the garden. Doubt the goodness of God. Doubt the person of God. On the one hand, trying to get them to be like God, and on the other hand, trying to doubt the character of God. Pride and doubt. Or anger, a subtle procedure. Ephesians 4.27. Doubt, by the way, Genesis 3.1 and the pride, 1 Timothy 3.7. The New English Bible says of Ephesians 4.27 in translating... Quote, leave no loophole for the devil. Leave no loophole for the devil. Griping. Griping about weather. Who's responsible for the weather? I attended a university that had as its major thesis or rule among several rules that they had. Constructive suggestions appreciated griping, not tolerated. And they gave an award at the end of each semester for the most constructive suggestion, which is a pretty good award. But the easiest way to get shipped from that university was to gripe just once. I sat on a discipline committee. I sat on both ends of it at different times. <laughs> I remember that there were people that were allowed to stay in school who had committed immoral acts, but they had had a change of attitude. But a griper, no. A griper was shipped. Because he is infectious, he destroys. In seminary, after we've been going for about two weeks, and the honeymoon is over, you know, and you've gotten all the assignments, and you're sure that these are not possible of fulfillment, and all those nice professors that you thought were so wonderful to start with now have become ugly beasts who don't have an ounce of sense, and if they did, they wouldn't assign such papers. 
About that time in seminary, I have a little suggestion at chapel hour. The next time somebody comes up to you now and begins to gripe about something, just kindly ask them, when did you get out of fellowship with the Lord? Because they obviously are. For if they were in fellowship with the Lord and they had a legitimate problem, they'd go to the one that could do something about it, but they would not go to other people talking about it. Griping is a very subtle device of the devil to destroy. Satan's means. One of his means whereby he employs his method of subtlety and crafty planning is to oppose all references to the sacrificial work of the cross. He opposes all references to the sacrificial work of the cross. A good example of that is in Matthew chapter 16 where the devil uses one of the most dedicated apostles of the Lord, Peter, he has just made a tremendous confession of Christ, that Christ is the Son of the living God, and then the Lord gives to him some other statements, which causes Peter to go on an ego trip. And on that ego trip, Peter forgets who he is, thinks he's the fourth member of the Trinity, and he then says to the Lord, rebuking him, this shall not be unto thee. What shall not be unto thee? What Jesus had just said. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter said, Lord, this will not be unto thee. Now, that's a contradiction of terms. Lord, this shall not be unto thee. That's got to be insanity. Jesus turns unto Peter and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking. And there's your word, noeo, again, savorist. You are not thinking the things that are of God, but you are thinking the things that are of men as energized by the devil. So that who gave Peter the thought that Jesus shouldn't go to Jerusalem to die? Well, Peter thought that it was just a good thought of dedication, you know. As long as you have me with you, Lord, you haven't got a thing to worry about. I'll certainly take care of you, and he would have. I'm confident that Peter must have been such a man that he'd clear the path any time anybody got in his way. He didn't have too good an aim. He probably was nearsighted or farsighted or something, so he missed with that sword. But nevertheless, he had a lot of dedication and devotion. He had a lot of brute strength, kind of like a tackle on the team. He had the power to do it, and he had dedication, but he got the wrong voice. And the voice was trying to keep Jesus from the cross. The devil hates Calvary. For Calvary not only releases Christians, but it spells doom for the devil. For that's where he was judged. And once a person has taken advantage of the cross work for his salvation, then the devil will still keep working to blind that believer to the fact of the cross work for him in his daily salvation. So there are many believers who have taken advantage of the cross for salvation from the penalty of sin who have not taken advantage of the cross for salvation from the power of sin daily. And the devil has him all tied up at that point. The devil hates Calvary. Secondly, the devil snatches away the seed of the word of God. Mark 4, verses 15 and 16. The sower soweth the word, 
and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown, but when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. That should be rather instructive after you've been through, what, 30, 40 hours in a couple of weeks or more. You could have gained a great deal of information that will be of no use at all because you did not make strategic plans to outwit the devil and to put to use the things that you're getting. For to not use it is to lose it. That's exactly what he said in Hebrews chapter 5. The mature person is he who by reason of use has exercised his senses to know good and evil. But the person who doesn't use it goes on in his ignorance, even though it went through his head, he still goes on in ignorance because he didn't use it. It would be far better for you to forget most of what you have heard during these weeks and take two or three things and make plans to apply them than it would be to remember everything you heard and apply nothing. But regardless of what you do, you can be sure the devil will do everything he can to steal every good thing you've learned. He will be working at it. That you can be sure of. Will you? What about the application to life of the things you've heard? Strategic plans, long-range goals, short-range goals, way to get around detours, roadblocks. Think through how you plan to put into practice some of the things you've been thinking about. He attacks the faith of a child of God. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Jesus here is talking once again to Peter, and he's telling Peter that he's going to really have a time of it. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. He wants to really put you through the strainer and bring you out in itsy-bitsy pieces. But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He said unto him, typical Petrine fashion, Lord, you're wrong. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said unto Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that you even know me. The devil tries the faith of God's children. Interestingly enough, he will never destroy the faith of God's children. For the trial of your faith does what? Works patience. So, sometime if you make the mistake and pray for patience, you may get trial instead. So that's the way it comes. He attacks the faith of the child of God. Fourthly, he suggests sin. There are numerous ways in which he does this. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, talks about his working with the mind, and therefore we're supposed to captivate every thought and not let one thought run loose, make it obey Jesus Christ, because it may be a thought that's a thought of the devil. No thought I have is worthy of following on its own. Every thought I have must be subjected to the word of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, for the devil suggests sin. Now, there are some good examples of that in the Word of God. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Ananias and Sapphira listened to the devil. Ananias and Sapphira were watching what had happened to Barnabas. Barnabas, being very magnanimous, had gone and sold a piece of ground that he had, seeing the need of the Christians, and he brought everything that he got from selling that piece of ground. He laid it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to every man as every man had need. 
And I imagine that numerous people came around and told Barnabas, well, you, you can't know how that helped us. My, we were just about to go under, brother, and your gift through the apostle really met our need. We just want to thank you. Ananias and Sapphira, who had been the leaders in the church, apparently, were standing around looking at that, and they were kind of losing their place. And uh, the devil gave a little thought and said, you know, you could have some of the same. On a bargain basis, you could sell a piece of land, too. Only don't give the whole thing. Go forward in church and make a big display of it, and the people will just be all over you, you know, thanking you, and you'll get their allegiance back again. You'll get their support. They'll really bless the day that you were born. Say, oh, Ananias, bless you. Oh, Sapphira, bless you. And they got thinking about that long enough, and they thought, you know, that's not too bad. And so they did it. Now, how many of us would have caught them? They come forward and make a great big gift. They say, see, I'm going to take on two-thirds of your support for the next year. Don't ask any questions. Just take it. Well, Peter didn't do that. Peter suspected their motivations were foul. And he laid it right on the line. He said, why have you allowed to so take possession of your thought processes that you have lied to God? Boy, that's putting down the line. I wouldn't try that, frankly, if I didn't think I had the gift of discernment, spirits. But Peter did, and he really called their number, and they woke up dead. He said, while you had the money, wasn't it your own? Did anybody require this of you? Did you have to do this? No. You didn't have to do it. You're a hypocrite. And that provided a tremendous example back for the early church because it said, no man durst join himself to them. They didn't have many people want to join the church after that. It really cleaned the hypocrites out. But the devil suggested the hypocrisy that led to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Or think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. Very practical area for husbands and wives. For here he is saying that to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife her due, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. Likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not the one the other. Don't cheat each other sexually, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again in order that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. The failure of a husband and wife to have a good, satisfying sexual relationship may well be the devil's opportunity for fornication. That's pretty practical. What about the guy who is always on the road away from his wife? Any precautions that he ought to take, realizing how the devil is likely to work at this point? The devil suggests sin. I remember an illustration of a friend of mine who was the leader of a Youth for Christ in an eastern city, and a very, very successful one, by the way. On Saturday night before the meetings, they used to have a prayer meeting. And a good number of the young people would gather together for prayer for the meeting that evening. And it seems that one of the first people to get there was this particular girl who was very, very active in YFC. She was a real soul winner, probably brought more people to Christ than anybody else in that group. She was a very attractive gal, she was a good singer, and she worked together very effectively with the director of YFC in that particular town. 
And at the prayer meetings, she was usually the first one there together with the director as they began the prayer meeting. And on one particular evening in prayer, my friend kind of leaned back on his heels as the girl was praying. And he was really overtaken by her prayer. How, what a godly, wonderful gal this was. And while she was praying, he began to think, you know, I sure missed it when I married my wife. My wife doesn't sing like this gal. My wife doesn't win souls like this gal. My wife doesn't have nearly the interest in YFC that this gal has. Obviously, she didn't. She was working all the time to keep him above board financially. But he didn't think about that. And he fell in love with her in that prayer meeting and decided that he had missed God's first will when he married his wife. And so now, in order to straighten it out, he was going to divorce his wife and marry this girl. And at this time, this girl was on her way to Moody as an honors student at Moody. And to make a long story short, I spent several hours with the guy going back to the Word of God. He was redeemed from that situation, as was she, and while he was now selling used cars down in South Carolina, and she was on her way up to Moody at exactly the same time, God hit them both, and they changed their mind and got straightened out. But in the sanctity of a prayer meeting, the devil injected that thought. He is no respecter of places. Because you find yourself in religious places or in sacred services, does not mean the devil is excluded. He specializes in those. He suggests sin, immorality, lies, the art of suggestion. Fifthly, he deceives by the use of counterfeit. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15 certainly ought to be memorized today because it is so often ignored by people who are running around today seeing signs and wonders and miracles. And in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And by the way, that's a poor rendering, transforming, because the word is the word conform in Romans 12 too. He's not transformed. The devil can never transform himself. He can only masquerade. To be transformed is to be changed from the inside out. To be conformed is to be changed from the outside, to put a mask on. So he's masquerading as the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also masquerade as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And so many people get taken in today because they look at somebody and they say, my, how sweet they are, how righteous they are, how good they are, how often they study their Bible and they've got 946 verses memorized and so on and so forth, and therefore they're of God. Listen, the devil specializes in counterfeit. And that's why Jesus prophesied in the last day, many shall come to me saying, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful things in thy name? Have we not preached... There's the clergy in thy name. Have we not cast out demons in thy name? They're the professional demonologists. 
Have we not done many miracles in your name? They're the supernatural workers. Jesus said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Counterfeit. And there are a lot of them today. It seems to me that today the devil has a scheme for every need of our body that isn't being met. For example, in the church today, there is a real need to be a greater expression of warmth. Christians can be together in the same church for years and never know each other. So what happens to bring that about? The devil sees that vacuum, and what does he come along with? He comes along with his fouled-up sensitivity training, whereby people go haywire on physical encounters. And so we have the World Council of Churches sponsoring sessions in which men and women together in the nude are rotating around in all kinds of religious dances in a whirlpool. That happened in Uppsala at the World Council of Churches meeting. Or Christian boys and girls, so-called, coming together and feeling each other's bodies so that they can get physical transference. Now, there is a need for physical communication. And where there is not a warmth and a demonstration of that warmth between people, the devil will supply the counterfeit that is perverted. The same thing with regard to the psychical area. When man's need is not met here, the devil supplies it. So today we have all kinds of people running around looking for a psychical experience, a charismatic experience, when what they really need is the Word of God, which is able to give them a mental catharsis. And it's all they need. Or to meet the noumenal area of man, the mind area. What have we got today? Transcendental meditation, Zen Buddhism, Hare Krishna, Mahababa, and all of the other religions of the mind. Satanic counterfeits for the real thought process that a Christian ought to go through. But Many Christians are not bothering to exercise their mind. So the devil finds a wide-open vacuum, and he fills it. And then some Christian says, My, you know, I just left myself open, and it got filled. Well, sure it will. The devil's looking for that kind of an opportunity. An empty head that wants to be filled. And then the person says, Oh, it was such a beautiful experience I got from God. He deceived by the use of counterfeit. Notice Matthew chapter 13. The devil sows tares, and the tares look like the wheat. And that's why the angels are going to do the harvesting, not men. You don't tell the difference between tares and wheat till the harvest. They both grow side by side. The only way I can have any protection is from the Word of God, not by being an official tear inspector. The devil's policy is to substitute the good for the bad, and he sure does this in the counterfeit. Sixth, he hinders God's servants. 2 Thessalonians 2.18, I'm just going to mention these. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. That is, the Holy Spirit, who is holding back the work of Satan, will do so until he be taken out of the way. And then the devil, who hinders the work of Christians, will be given free reign. Those who have some kind of an idea that they're going through the tribulation better get back and study what the tribulation is like again. For that's going to be a time 
when the wrath of God, the wrath of the devil, and the wrath of man are all given free vent on the earth. And there will be no restraint of sin in that day. Sin will have its full development to the extent that men will cry to die. And they can't. The devil will have his epitome of manifestation in the man of sin in the tribulation period. Let me just say something briefly concerning Satan's messengers. I'll outline this and not go into it. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15 talks about his messengers transforming themselves or masquerading as the apostles of Christ and their ministers of righteousness and angels of light. You notice he has a clergy. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. He has a clergy. Secondly, under his messengers, they have a doctrine. 1 Timothy 4. Doctrines of demons. And if you'll notice today, in the synagogue of Satan, they are singing such things as just as I am and holy, 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 changing a few words. They used to have a real antipathy for Christians. Today, they are saying Jesus Christ is the greatest medium that ever lived. They have a doctrine, the doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. They have churches, synagogues of Satan. Revelation 3, 9. Churches that have been churches that no longer honor Jesus Christ as head and the word of God as the authoritative word, and therefore they are becoming merely religious organizations. Jesus says, I remove your light out of the candlestick. You are no longer a church. You're just a religious organization. There are a lot of religious organizations that still call themselves churches. They're not churches at all. If that's the case, and you're a part of it, you need to think it through. But when they no longer have Christ as their head, they are a synagogue of the devil. Satan's master, 1 John 3.8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. A modern translation, the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of liquidating the devil's activity. That was his purpose. How does he reinforce it? 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In spite of all the schemes and all the plans and all the years of experience and all the brilliance that the devil has, he doesn't have a ghost of a chance against me. If I am depending on the one who is in me who is greater than the devil is. If I ever get to thinking that I am sufficient to do battle with the devil, that is the first step toward my defeat. I do not have the equipment to battle supernatural beings, but I have within me one who does. And any time I am walking out of fellowship with God, at that moment I am vulnerable to the most fiery darts of the wicked one. That's why a Christian ought never to chance to live in sin. That's why when we do falter immediately to confess it and to be restored to fellowship with the Lord, for being out of fellowship is the greatest opportunity the devil wants. The devil has a master, but you're going to have